You're listening to the Kindling Rhythms podcast by Restore Houston Church. In John chapter 21, Jesus built a kindling fire for his friend Peter, who was at a low place in his life. His shame and failures were defining everything for him. But Jesus will not let shame and failure have the last word in Peter's life. And in an act of love, Jesus built a kindling fire to serve as a meeting place between himself and Peter. A broken Peter meets with Jesus around this fire, and Jesus gently restores Peter, showing him love, giving him grace, and empowering him to live the life that Jesus had called him to. In this beautiful moment, the whole direction of Peter's life changes. Kindling Rhythm strives to follow in the tradition of that same kindling fire that Jesus built for Peter. By creating a meeting space where your shame and failure give way to the love of Jesus. Where grace restores even the most broken parts of your life and you can find rest knowing that he deeply cares for you. May you also, just like Peter, find him in this space. That reminds me, uh, back when uh, iPods first like came out, you know, and when you plugged it into the computer, iTunes would say like, your iPod is syncing, you know, yeah, like yeah. you knew you could name your iPod. Yeah. Someone named theirs the Titanic so that when they plugged it in, it said the, the Titanic, Titanic is, is sinking. sinking. <laughs> Was that someone you? No, oh. <laughs> no, I can't claim that one, but that it just stuck with me, you know, it's good. So since we were already <laughs> recording, maybe I'm just going to leave that. <laughs> That's how we're going to start this discussion. <laughs> Uh, welcome back to the Kindling Rhythms, Justin, Phil, and we just finished looking at Christmas through the eyes of Mary. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about this one just because there's so much that we can get into with um, just the general uh, like talking about women in the Bible and yeah. what it means to incorporate groups that typically haven't been part of right. the included group. And so, yeah, yeah. this is going to be a really cool conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So stay tuned. If you want to, we're going to be talking a little bit about just honestly, some of the art of biblical narrative and under, like, how do we, how do we read my Bible as story? Like, how do I understand the context and the people that were writing the, the stories in the Bible? Um, and you and might just are, enjoy it more in the process. Right. And enjoy it more in the process <laughs> instead of looking at it like this technical manual that you're sort of trying to get everything right. Understanding it is this, I don't know, vibrant living story where mm -hmm. even if the authors are not saying things directly, sometimes they're sort of saying things indirectly, um, which we'll talk a little bit about more. Um, but before we do that, let's just set up, let's just set up where we're going to be this week. So. I just, I first off want to say, like, I feel like this will be challenging for us. Like, all of us have some group of people that we mm -hmm. like to preclude, pre preclude, preclude, is that the right word? Pre-exclude. Exclude, exclude yeah. Exclude. Um, well, you may not even like to, but you just know that that's there for you. Right, right. And maybe you're trying to change that, but you still know it's an it's, issue. It's there and it's yeah. a part of the issue. And I think I think that... Um, you know, as I mentioned in the sermon, I think there are some of us who fit more naturally probably into the, I don't know, just the natural, natural, like fabric and ethos of how things work. So the analogy I gave is, you know, I, I will preach at a different church. I'm preaching at a different church this weekend and somebody may dislike my particular approach to a text, yeah. um, but no one's going to come up to me after the sermon and say, you're, because you're a man, you shouldn't be preaching that text. 
Um, that would be new. Yeah, that would be new. That would be that would be new. Um, now it would have been new in 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 the the gospel narrative. And so, I want to just challenge us first off to just examine our own hearts. Like, are there places that we are harboring? Um, I don't know, prejudice or discrimination or maybe content, contempt um, towards a certain group of people um, or or have issue um, with them being a part of the kingdom of God, right? So that's, yeah. that's really what the gospel narratives, um, both Matthew and Luke, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on the podcast, but, but both Matthew and Luke write their gospels. They set up the birth of Jesus in such a way that we are supposed to see how the marginalized and the dismissed um, and those who were not part of the national identity of of the religious culture Jesus was being born into. They were not the ones that, they were not like the culture stand, standard setters. They were not Instagram influencers, so to speak, right? They didn't, they were the people that you, that wouldn't have had a following on Instagram if we were, if we were in the age of social media. And yet both Matthew and Luke write their gospels in such a way that we are meant to see that all of a sudden the kingdom of God that's being brought about by the Messiah is now all of a sudden bringing these people in. And they're not just bringing these people in as charity cases, right? So we're like, hey, we feel good. We included you. They're actually bringing them in and giving them a voice. Um, right. And this is actually going to be the thing that rubs pretty much everyone the wrong way throughout all of Jesus' ministry. Mm, yeah. I mean, from literal birth to yeah. the people present as birth to his yeah. literal death when yeah. there's the prisoner. Yeah. There's the like, you know, the, right. the criminal on the cross with him who yeah. he accepts. Right. You're going to have Jesus just like bucking the norm left mm, and right. Mm. Yeah. So I want to, let's definitely talk about that a little bit more. Um, I, you know, and so whenever we talk about this kind of stuff, <clears throat> Those of us who maybe haven't experienced it firsthand um, may still wrestle with trying to understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and and I just want to say, like, I think that wrestling is okay. Like, I think if we don't allow a safe space for us to wrestle with that, um, then we're never really going to give our, our hearts an opportunity to change. Um, but I do think that there is something valuable about listening to those who have existed outside of of, of maybe sort of the natural power structures or um, rhythms or ethos mm -hmm. of the culture. And so I wanted to actually share with you guys, um, and this is why I like doing the podcast, because it gives me a chance to share um, some things that I, I can't quite share in a sermon only because you guys don't want to have two-hour sermons. I might enjoy two-hour sermons, but Phil's already looking at me like I wouldn't do a two-hour sermon with you. Um, <laughs> so, um, Beth Moore, I mentioned in the sermon is a evangelical conservative Baptist teacher and preacher actually, um, and has oftentimes, I think, un, without any intention of her own has been brought into a lot of circles of controversy and has been attacked at different times. And yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy because especially in her case, there wasn't at all a an attempt to try to create controversy she mm -hmm. was just trying to serve yeah. the lord and do what yeah she felt like yeah. was gonna help uh, other women in the church and you and it's like crazy to think like like you wouldn't imagine that would create controversy but it did, it did. yeah it it is yeah. <laughs> yeah that's such a good point i like the way you said it. like she's never like she's never gone out of her way to attack other male Christian no, leaders not, yeah. or like, it's just not even on her radar. And yet over and over again, she has found herself 
um, on the end of, of pretty discriminating remarks. And so I, I think her letter, um, I think her letter addresses what I think is a bigger just sin problem in all of our hearts and that all of us um, have can have hatred or discrimination towards certain people and then we can use we can find all different kinds of ways to justify it mm -hmm. and so um i want to just read some portions of her letter um you can go online and read the full letter if you'd like the letter is called a letter to my brothers it's written by beth moore um but i just i want to read a little bit of what she says here in her letter she says as a woman uh, leader in the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant pronounced difference, not just proper respect, which I was glad to show, to male leaders and when placed in situations to serve alongside them, to do so apologetically. I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I've ridden elevators and hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving the same event and not been spoken to or even more awkwardly in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of, the latter of which I was expected to understand was all in good fun. I am a laugher and I can take jokes and I can make jokes. I know good fun when I'm having it. I also know when I'm being dismissed and ridiculed. Mm -hmm. I was the elephant in the room with a skirt on. I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say to them, brother, I was getting up before dawn to pray and pour over the scriptures when you were still in pull-ups. <laughs> Some will inevitably argue that the disrespect was not over gender, but over my lack of formal education. But that largely too, too goes back to an issue of gender. Um, when I was a woman, uh, where was a woman in my generation and denomination, she's Southern Baptist uh, Convention, uh, to get seminary training to actually teach the scriptures? I hoped it would be an avenue for me and applied and was accepted to Southwestern Seminary in 1988. After a short time of making the track across Houston, while my kids were in school and the reading environment and coming to the realization of what my opportunities would and would not be, I took a different route. I turned to doctrine classes and tutors, read stacks of books, and did my best to learn how to use commentaries and other Bible research tools. My road was messy, but it was the only reasonable avenue open to me. About a year ago, I had an opportunity to meet a theologian I had long respected. I read virtually every book he had written. I looked so forward to getting to share a meal with him and talk about theology. The instant I met him, though, he took a different, he took, he, the instant I met him, he looked at me up and down, smiled approvingly and said, you are better looking than blank. But he didn't leave it blank. He filled it with the name of another woman Bible teacher. These examples uh, seem fairly benign in light of recent scandals of sexual abuse and assault coming to the light, but the attitudes are growing uh, from the same dangerously malignant root. Um, many women have experienced horrific abuses within the power structures of our Christian world. She goes on to say here, uh, and this is where I want to talk about um, just how we approach marginalization as Christians and, and inclusiveness. Um, she said then in early October 2016, surfaced attitudes among some Christian leaders that smacked of misogyny, objectification, and astonishing 
uh, disesteem of women and it spread like wildfire. And it was just the beginning. I came face to face with one of the most demoralizing realizations of my adult life. Here it is. Scripture was not the reason for the colossal disregard and disrespect of women among many of these men. Mm -hmm. It was only an excuse. Mm -hmm. Sin was the reason. Mm-hmm. Ungodliness. Um, and, and so I think that she addresses exactly what we need to get. So scripture can often be used to take certain groups of people and exclude them from what we, we see as the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often I hear this, well, you are accepted here, but then there's often this like, fine print of things you need to change about yeah, it's your got life. the little asterisk next to it right right it's got the little <laughs> asterisk next to it and and so one of the one of the litmus tests that i will often um that i think i think that we can kind of use just collectively as a church is are there groups of people that we we feel like have to change something first before they come and worship jesus alongside of us mm-hmm. um whether it's their lifestyle their sexuality like whatever part of is there something that when we see them come through the doors of the church first do we say you got to change this and then come um yeah do you act walk talk like us right you know like otherwise you're gonna okay well i may be okay with it but i know some other people in the church that are gonna have a real big problem with it so Mm -hmm. you know no no requirement but i mean if you really want to not like cause any problems, you should probably just, you know, wear this and not that. Kind right. Of thing. You know, right. like that kind of stuff. Or say this. Or, yeah, right. exactly. Um, and I think Beth Moore says it, says it really, really well. And that it's really not a scripture issue. It's a sin issue. Um, and we can very easily hide behind scripture and say, well, it's a scriptural issue. That's why we have the policy that we have. Um, Slavers did that. Hmm. Yeah. They justified slavery with the Bible. Right. Um, Not a good justification, but they right. did it. Right. We're getting to a place where we're you like our hearts have this disposition towards hatred, and we can very easily use our religion, our spirituality, um, our our own I don't know cultural beliefs um, to justify hatred in a lot of ways. And I think we all have, <coughs> excuse me, different groups of people. Uh, that do that. And so one, one, one person in particular that I have mentioned, and then we'll wrap here pretty quickly, um, was Lecrae, who's one of my favorite Christian rappers. I still have a bunch of playlists by him that I listen to on my way to pick up my daughter from daycare usually. Um, but he, he's also had um, expressed some similar, um, I think, um, disillusionment and pain and even trauma that Beth Moore is expressing with just dealing with what is the American evangelical machine. Um, and Lecrae, not too long, not I say not too long, around 2012, um, really began to speak out about just racial injustice in the country. Mm-hmm. And so he went on to say this, and I, I think his, um, I, I think it's really worth hearing what he says. But he says, um, I've been grieving the loss of black lives since 2014 without consultation. I've been fighting critics and scrutiny since 2012. I can't even read comments on social media anymore. Mm. All the slander is too much for any one person to digest. They don't get me. Um, He says, I navigate different cultures daily, and I understand how people can make false assumptions because of their lack of interaction with the cultures I find myself in. But they don't frequent, here, listen to this, they don't frequent those spaces much. How can they rush to judgment? 
Um, I hit a serious low on tour at one point. I was done with American Christian culture. No voice of my own, no authenticity. I was a puppet. I'd seen so much fakeness from those who claimed to be my brothers and sisters that I didn't even know how to talk to my heavenly father. Hmm. Um, and so you have this very, what I think is probably, honestly, I think he's one of the, at least for me, he's probably one of the single most um, influential Christian musicians and artists in my own personal life. Um, whenever I get, I don't know, exhausted or with this whole church planning thing, Lecrae is, I actually have a Lecrae playlist that I will put on and listen to um, as, as a way to just encourage myself. And, and yet he's saying it at this moment when I began to speak out about, um, and, and, and he writes an article, you can read this one too. It's on, it's, it's a HuffPost article. It's called the pains of humanity have been draining me, but he'll talk about, he's had instances before he was going to a show where the cops would pull him over and put their knees on his neck, looking for a gun that he didn't have. Um, and he said they would, they tore his car apart and then just left and he had to put it all back together and get, get to his his show on time hmm. and then he gets to the show right and talks about the the, the injustice in in racial america and he says that any and, he, and the, he's never received such violent hostile opposition from other christian brothers and sisters um <clears throat> and and so you have and so what i want to do what i want to invite us to do with this meeting house this week um i realize that this is going to be challenging for us and this is this is maybe even uncomfortable conversations but i think they're ones that we need to have um, and let's just really examine our own hearts. Um, are there places where we are willing to listen to the experiences of others? Um, do we have the humility to do that? Um, because one of the things that we see from the story of Mary, from the Gospels, um, is God not just including them, right? So it's not just that they're members of the church um, or the members of this new kingdom that the Messiah is bringing, but they actually have a voice. Mm -hmm. um, that we got to listen to and reflect on key roles. Yeah. Key roles. Yeah. Is a really good way to say it. Um, and so this week, um, we're lighting the candle of joy, um, in your meeting houses, you guys are welcome to light those candles. Um, this week you, you will light, um, both this week's candle and last week's candle, but this week, um, we are lighting the candle of joy. And I think that actually really reflects, I think joy is a, is an appropriate candle to light on a week when we're talking about Mary. Um, because sure. of just the sheer amount of joy that she exclaimed that she has over realizing this upside down kingdom is coming and it's those with humility um, it right though it's it's a kingdom of humility it's a kingdom of compassion it's a kingdom of grace um, and it's the proud and the haughty and the arrogant and those who want to use others for their own selfish gains that are now on the outside of this kingdom and it's those of us who have been dismissed and marginalized that are being brought in and not just being brought in as um, members but truly as voices that um, yeah. <laughs> the world <clears throat> needs to reconcile with mm -hmm. and listen to um, regardless of how it may make us feel or how we respond so um, meeting house leaders you guys can pause it here and jump into your discussion today um, but if you are interested in having more of a discussion with Phil and I we're going to talk a little bit about um, just how we see this show up in the story of the Gospels. We'll talk a little bit about how we see this show up in Jesus's own ministry. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about just the art of biblical narrative, right? So if you're if you're reading Luke's Gospel, um, which we're in this week, and you're like, I don't I don't see how Mary's voice is being emphasized. Like I'm not quite sure I understand. Um, there is um, a way that these writers will will sort of. Um, 
counterintuitive. They, they will write things that are counterintuitive to their original readers that would have gotten their attention. Um, and so, primarily in this case, um, it would have gotten their attention that it's Mary and Elizabeth that seem to understand what's happening, what God's doing, and they're proclaiming it. Um, and it's yeah, before it, anyone else. Before anyone else, and then you have you have others like Zachariah, who's a priest, who you would expect this kind of thing to come from, who are silent in this in this moment. And so. Um, Matthew and Luke are both writing their accounts of the birth of Jesus in such a way that we're really supposed to pay attention to these these other voices that that have really not been a part of the discussion before. So, um, meeting house leaders, you guys can pause here, and Phil and I are going to jump into the discussion. If you guys want to unpack a little bit more later with us. Um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about, um, I don't know, just the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, like we said, sort of start their accounts of the birth of Jesus by maybe highlighting some voices that we might not otherwise have listened to. What are we supposed to, I don't know, take away from that as readers? Uh, you should first take away that, huh, this is different. <laughs> this is going to be different. Right. Uh but do we as modern readers, do we read it and go, oh, this is different? No, and I think that's, I mean, it's to a lot of factors, but I think 
most of all, especially if you grew up even with the stories like you've been talking about, it's just out of a sense of normalcy, like, oh yeah, of course that happened. Right. When you look back at it as a matter of fact, everything seems less um, offensive, mm. right? Because right. it's just an accepted fact. And because the story has been passed on, you just assume that everything's okay with it. Mm. What, like, wh why would you, why would a story continue if like the people that were continuing that were passing on the story have an issue with, you know, key right. elements involved. Right. So, you know, so it's just by fact of it being a passed on story in a positive light, you assume, oh, everything's, you yeah. know, hunky dory here. Everything's right. good to go. Right. But if you're an original reader, so what, so let, let's try to put ourselves like, so part of why it can be helpful to put ourselves in the place of the original readers um, is so whenever we approach a biblical text, right, there's, there's really, I think, three different ways that the text forms itself. And some might disagree with me. I would put this definitely in a secondary issue. Phil might disagree with me. Here's, here's kind of how I understand it. We'll is, see. <laughs> <laughs> you've got the original author who's writing it, in this case, Matthew and Luke, mm -hmm. um, who come from a very Jewish background. Um, Luke, not so much. Luke, not so much, but Matthew, certainly. Yo, very, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the original readers who, especially for Matthew, is a Jewish audience. Maybe mm -hmm. Luke, not so much. Um, and then you have the meaning of the text itself. And you have all three of these. You're trying to understand both what was Matthew's original intent when he's writing mm -hmm. it, what was the original readers interpreting from the mm -hmm. text, and then what is the text in and of it speaking of in and of itself. Yeah, and I would just include with author's intent God's intent. Well, that's so sorry. That's what I mean by that middle piece of the tech. God's intent is that is the text speaking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you have these, you have, what is God's intent with the text? Yeah. You've got Matthew who is coming from this Jewish ancient Near East culture. And you've got readers that are in the ancient Near East, 2000 years apart from who we are. And they're all kind of coming to the text together. Yeah. And I would say for culture and just, it is important to an extent to understand what they would have understood, but it's um, because that's on, you know, the, it goes to the culture, what they would have been thinking about when th certain things were said or brought right. up. But it's also on the reader side, it's important to remember that that was a specific time and place of audience that were right. reading these things. And so right. they weren't writing to us. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so we... So when you see you, that's not you. <laughs> I, I, I love that you bring that up because, you know, some so, right, there's obviously nuance to this, but yeah. the Bible wasn't written to like a 21st century American, no. right? Like none of the letters, none of the we letters We can safely were. say that. Yeah. <laughs> and yet sometimes I think we approach the text as if it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when we do that, we actually ruin our not ruins the right but maybe we subtly sabotage our ability to actually read what's being said mm -hmm. um when we think that it was written for us and to us yeah and none of that is to say that it's not helpful and applicable oh, and like right. life-giving yeah. to right. us now right it's just to clarify that you have to take an extra step or two you have to add in a little bit more of a, a meditation and a thought yeah. and a, a process that says, okay, what was it saying? And what does that mean now? Rather than jumping straight to, right. how do I apply this? Right.
And that's, yeah, that's really what's going on there with that, you know, because it's, even if it was written in such a way where all the words were perfectly in our English and we didn't have to worry about translation, right. we're still dealing with that huge difference in time and culture. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's where, right, so if you're reading the text, like say we're reading in our, in our Luke text, we're in Luke 1, and you're like, I don't see how Mary's voice is being emphasized over Herod's and Zacharias. Well, that's because like in our culture and the way we're reading the text, we wouldn't necessarily see that. I think most people would still even be surprised now, which is saying something 2000 years later, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, right. And so one of the ways that Luke undercuts even Herod is he's constantly using these terms that were often described of the political leaders like Mm. Lord. (laughs) And so he's contrasting, you've got Herod, you've got Zachariah, this religious leader, and both, like, he's kind of subtly insinuating that it's not always necessarily their, like, that's going to be the thing that's... Yeah, it's not their people. show in this case. Mm, that's a good way to, that's a great way to put it. It's not their show. Um, and so... Yeah, spotlight I, on Elizabeth and Mary. Right. What did they have to say? This right. is important. Listen. Right. Whereas if you're reading it in your Luke's original readers and you've heard Herod or Zachariah mentioned, you would have been maybe more interested in what they had to say. And right. None of, none of the emphasis is given to them. I mean, well, and you would have been very much like, why is this voice being given to these women? Hmm. Like, even if, you, even if you were ready to get on board with, okay, Mary is the mother of, of you know, the son of God. Right. You'd still be with, well, women are allowed to speak in the... The, right. the temple right they're not even allowed in the inner courts or the the court where the men are before you get to the place where only priests are allowed right and the holy of holies is being born in a woman mm. but a woman's not allowed in the holy of holies wow let's say so, so <laughs> elaborate on that a little bit like i i really like the way you say that but a lot so for somebody's like holy of holies what like what, uh, yeah, what so is the holy of holies and so inside the temple there was the complex so you had your outer courts you had your court of gentiles which was the most outer right you had your court i i forgive me i don't know all the technicalities i'm sure someone can correct me but essentially it went outwards from right. those who weren't of israel the gentiles right. those who were but only a certain group of people, like say women. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there within that, there was where men could go. And then beyond that, priests could go. Right. And then within the temple right. itself, only certain priests at certain times could even go into the larger room of the temple. Right. And then only the high priest, what was it, once, twice a year? Uh, I think it was once a year. Once right? a year, yeah, could actually go into the Holy of Holies, which was the footstool of God's throne. Right. So the, the, the two cherubims above the Ark of the Covenant right. were the mercy seat right. where God's presence would literally rest. Right. Like his literal presence. Right. And that's and so before th- the Day of Atonement. Yeah. Which we which is which when we, we have we've the talked about entering into the Holy of Holies. And so <clears throat> Garden of Eden Temple these are places where heaven and earth meet. These are places where God's presence breaks into our physical creation right. because God's spirit right. and that he actually resides. And so Jesus, I love, love, love the, the language in the gospel where it says, um, God became man or man and tabernacled among us. Mm, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. Most translations will say like resided among us, whatever. Right. 
man, that doesn't, that doesn't yeah. connect right. with the, the imagery. They're obviously trying to say, right. Like he templed among us. Like what? Mm. He was the temple, the garden, our places where heaven and earth meet. Jesus was right. the meeting of heaven and earth. Right. He was both God and man right. fully. And so he is the tabernacle. He, and which is why you get to the last supper, his, his body, his body is the bread, the show bread, the blood, the wine. These are also temple imagery. He is, sorry, I'm getting excited. But no, no, no. No, this is <laughs> like really good. this is, he is the embodiment of that meeting of heaven and earth. So right. he is the literal most holy thing mm -hmm. on earth. Right. And so you have a woman birthing the most holy person on earth. Mm. She's not even allowed to go in even Into close the whole, to in there. In the way that you described, it's like you have the Holy of Holies and you have a, a society where it gets more and more exclusive the closer you get to the right, Holy of right, Holies. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden you have Mary pregnant with the Holy of Holies. Yeah. What would that have done? Like what if you're reading blown this, their minds? Yeah. You're, you're, you're Matthew's readers maybe or Luke's readers. What's the what do you like? What's your initial reaction to that? Oh gosh, I'm imagining a wide range of reactions by it, but I'm imagining a lot of the a lot of the the men uh, and women. I mean, but especially the more religiously educated men getting upset. Mm. Yeah, and and yeah. I mean, this is one of. I mean, I could go on 50 plus reasons why they didn't accept Jesus. A lot of them at the mm, time, especially yeah. the religious leaders, yeah. because he broke the expectation of what they thought they knew about God, mm. about the law, about all these things. And you see is that Jesus didn't break the law. He didn't change the law. He right. didn't do anything to God's character or intent or law. Right. He merely like, he clarified it mm, for them. Right. Right. And said like, well, no, this is, this hasn't changed. Y'all just, right. y'all aren't getting it. Right. And y'all are going to reject me because of it. Right. Yeah. That's, and I like the word clarify because I, I think of so often just in my own spiritual life, right. I'm, I'm wrestling with a particular issue or wrestling with something. Um, how often are we resistant to God's clarification? Mm. So I, I think that it's just, I feel yeah. like it's human instinct for us to want to not be clear, even on things in our own heart. Like there's off, like the reason therapy is difficult for people is because you have to take an honest look at yourself mm -hmm. and nobody wants to take an honest look at themselves often. And like, even if you do, it's difficult for you. Yeah. yeah regardless, right. it is a, it's a difficult process. And so even I, if you've identified the issue right now to do something about it, it's like 10 times as hard. Right. And so that just, that makes me wonder, like, how often are we resistant to God's clarification in our own life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, when, I mean, and just in general, right? Like if you're not a very open-minded person in general, you're not going to be an open-minded person in Christianity. Right. Like if you're not open to the fact that, um, and this, I, I want to back up a little because this is why it's so important not to vest your sense of well-being, your sense of identity in anything that is cultural or man-made or not from God. Or if it's from God, you have to be very careful about whether you're basing it in his character or something you've interpreted from scripture, because right. that will make it infinitely harder right. for you to change your mind about something. If you right. think this is going to 
make you have like a, a like a an existential crisis on yeah. who you are and all that you've believed and based your life on and worked everything towards, right. then it's gonna be really hard for you to change your mind about it. Right. And that's what's so frustrating, I think, with ourselves and yeah. dealing with other people is that right. you're when you're presenting something new, you're not, I mean, there could be a lot of other reasons, but sometimes it's because you're getting, you're getting down to making this person confront something that's a core belief for them. That's going to have to make them reevaluate everything. And it shouldn't is kind of my point there because you shouldn't ever have been basing your view of reality on anything that is a, a product, whether interpretively or whatever of man. Right. I, I get that that creates some issues if you don't believe the Bible was right. inspired by God. Right. But I mean, essentially that, you know, I don't want to go like too like dogmatic with that, but essentially like, yeah, it, you're the, who God is, his character in Christ are, that's the only place our identity as Christians should be based yeah. in. And I'm really glad you brought this up. So we talked about it a little bit in the sermon. I, it was a longer sermon. So I was, I was trying to, there's a lot I was trying to pack in, but um, we talked about it briefly. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of discussion in our culture right now. Like, where do we get our self-worth? Is it mm-hmm. from positive affirmations? Is it from like, do we do we? And so what's interesting is when you see Mary have this praise, this song mm-hmm. where she declares the world's going to turn upside that down. Mag- and the Magnificent. The Magnificent. Right. As you as you get ready for her to declare the coming of this Messiah is going to change everything. And it's through her that it's happening. And she is blessed and all of that. Um, you don't. So what you don't see her saying is, "I knew all along I had it in me." Like I just, I knew it. Like they kept telling me no, but like you know, like, <laughs> and I just wouldn't listen. And I, and that's not where she goes. And so she says, "Oh, how my soul praises the Lord! How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He took notice of His lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one is holy. He has done." great things for me and so immediately you see her understanding i have worth and i have value because god is with me because it doesn't come from it doesn't come from how the culture has defined it for me it doesn't come from the fact that i'm from nazareth and no one has respect for nazareth it doesn't have to do with my gender and the fact that no one has respect for my gender um it doesn't have to do even from the fact that i am i'm i essentially am from a, a impoverished class like i'm from a very low socioeconomic class it doesn't come from that either it comes from the fact that god has found favor with me he's using me he is um right and and so she i think rightly places all of her value and her self-worth in this idea that god is with her um yeah and here's a fun thing to do look at the words she's saying look at all the things you just talked about and go back to the prophets they say the same thing mm, mm. There, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, when when God approaches them to be the one to bring their His word to the people, it's why me, right? Like, wow, this is amazing. I am, yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't, like, like they're accepting of it, but they're also just realizing, like, wow, right, right, that what a joy. And so, I mean, Mary is, this is like prophetic language. I mean, this is. Yeah. I mean, this is she's the, voice the, of the prophet. prophet. Like, you yeah. know, like, the, right. I mean, she's bringing the prophet, right. you know, the one. And, and right. she's, the I mean, she's one. now in this sort of that type of role. She's literally bringing God's word into the world. Right, right. <laughs> and, and 
you know, and I, I, so, and to me, that's, that's what's most profound about this is that she has had the humility from the beginning when yeah, the angel visits sure. her to this see isn't this. something she just now gained. Yeah. Right. And, but it's through that humility that she realizes, wait a second, I'm more than any other leader, more than any ruler, any prince. Um, what God's doing through me is going to change forever, change the world forever. Um, she values what God values. She, right. she, her heart is where God's heart is. Right. That's such a good way to put it. And so they, there is this sort of natural alignment there mm-hmm. um, when the angel comes to Mary originally. And so um, I think there's something worth us. So, you know, Catholics and Protestants have been fighting for a long time on, on the role of like, who is Mary and the role of Mary. And I don't want us to get into all of that other than to say, like, I think there's a reason that Mary says all generations will call me blessed um, because you have this, this person who, um, whose heart aligns with, like you were saying, is in the place of what God is doing. And through her, he changes everything. Um, and it's not the rich rulers. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the powerful political leaders that do this. Um, it is Mary. And so when she says, all generations will call me blessed, like I, I think there is some beautiful truth to that of like, bless you, Mary, for seeing yeah, what no course. one else could see and no one else saw and making yourself um, available for the coming of our Messiah. Right. And so this is, I, I just thought of, you know, so imagine this, right? Like you're talking about like, would, what would have been their reaction to learning about this, whether in person or through the reading or hearing the gospels later of Mary having this, this, I mean, this amazing blessing, right. right? And her being as a woman, so intimately involved with what God was doing. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, think about this way. If God was acting like all of the major power structures and all the norm norms in the culture would be expecting, right? He God would have told the high priest first. Mm, yeah. yeah, and it and it would have right. been yeah. and it would have been the the son of one of the right. the priest's wives or something like right. that. Like it right. it would have been done through the power and the order of the time if it yeah. was done as they expected. Right. And when that happens, though. So I, I think what it's what happens is it forces our hearts to really um, it forces our hearts to a place of humility. I think it does. So yeah. one of the things that Lecrae said that I, I, I want to end with real quick, we take a quick break here and then we're going to jump back into the discussion. Um, so Lecrae is talking about all of this um, ever since he started speaking out against racial injustice. One of the things that would happen is when he would talk about we need we need racial justice. Like there is racism in our churches. Our churches need repentance. Um, people immediately were like, you're being political and you're jumping on this. And there's no nuance there for them to understand um, where he's coming from. And I think... Um, and so he, he, he says, he says, on one front, I think it takes humility to hear another por- person's vantage point, especially when you believe that the one that you have is correct. We are all biased. There is no one in, in this room who's not conditioned socially or via- environmentally to have biases. And biases exist with everyone. So listening and understanding takes a level of humility just does and that's really what it comes down to mm-hmm. um and i think that's honestly what i think this fits kind of in with what we were saying with what beth moore is saying is it's not a scripture issue mm-hmm. 
it's a it's a sin issue it's a pride issue um, and that's what it that's what gives um, you know I think in her experience that's what gives these men this this feeling that they have the right to, to comment on on some of the things that they do or to ignore her in the elevator um, it's not a scripture issue it's a pride issue and I think that I think that we could say the same thing even with like discussions on 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 racial reconciliation or <laughs> or even how do we bring um, our brothers sisters and siblings in the LGBT community into belonging into this kingdom of the Messiah So, um, and we're back. Sorry, I just always wanted back. to say that. <laughs> Does that just be your official role in the podcast now? You're the and we're back guy. And we're back. <laughs> we are back. And I want to talk about Ann Clements, who is a scholar or whose work I've been really, really just absorbing. She, um, she wrote a book, which was actually really her dissertation, um, called Mothers on the Margin, The Significance of Women mm. in Matthew's Genealogy. Um, and I... Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you... You've heard of her work before? Uh, the, this concept. So, yeah, no, I just... Yeah, yeah, This yeah. is cool. So, um, she is someone I'm just now getting familiar with and am really, really appreciating her perspectives. Um, but she's got a couple of quotes here that I want to just read and then we can get Phil's thoughts on it um, as well. But... Here's so, so just just so that like just for those of you who are like Justin's making all this up. Uh, <laughs> here's a scholar. So one of the one of the reasons I'm really appreciating her work is just the level of scholarship that goes into um, into to, to what she's really trying to help mm -hmm. us understand. But she says this: um, the inclusion of these women serves these women serves to signal the importance 
of those on the margins in the ministry of the Messiah and to anticipate uh, Matthew's rhetoric concerning the broadening of Israel's boundaries to include Gentile outsiders. I argue that in contrast to the dominant male-focused narrative, listen to this carefully, there is a counter-narrative that focuses on women. Hmm. Their exclusion is the first indication of a positive gynocentric counter-narrative that it will be demonstrated runs throughout the gospel. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit. So I want to finish with, let's talk a little bit about how this counter and this, this, this gynocentric counter narrative that runs, as she says, is demonstrated throughout the gospel, which by the way, um, she is not like a liberal scholar at Yale. She's actually part of the Baptist denomination. Uh, I believe she's actually affirmed those in Yale the... people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, well, I just, for those who are like, Oh, you're reading like, she's not, um, she's, so she's not. And she says this in her thesis. I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not approaching this from a modern feminist, uh, right. theological yeah, yeah. narrative, nor am I approaching it from a fundamental narrative. Like, um, and I think she does a really good job of finding some of that middle space. Um, but she goes on to say that consequently, contrary to, uh, well, actually, um, so, okay. So here's, here's where she, so we've been talking about how. Luke and Matthew are kind of subtly throwing jabs at the, I don't know, just the, the conventional power structures and the way they were used to understanding the kingdom, right? So Herod, right? So back to where we would expect what Mary says to, to have come from the high priest, it comes from Mary, right? So there's this kind of counterintuitive approach to what's going on. And she says this, consequently, contrary to um, apparent modernist assumptions, there is no such thing, here it is, as an interest-free, innocent reading that is completely objective in its interpretation. Individuals make up communities, and interpretive communities also determine meaning. Since no reading is innocent, uh, she says, I will start by outlining my position. And that's where she goes on to say, I'm, I'm Baptist, like this is my denomination, this mm -hmm. is my perspective, I'm not a feminist, but I am also not a fundamentalist. Right. Um, and so she goes on to say this about um sort of this whole counter narrative that the gospels are, are talking about are, are insinuating from the voice of the women she says they look for uh counter traditions within the bible voices that offer alternatives to dominant biblical voices in which must be teased out to be heard hmm. um and so she says the bible shows us not merely patriarchy and elitism and nationalism it shows us the fragility of these ideologies through irony and counter voices the challenge to patriarchal values comes most fundamentally in the opening chapters of the old testament so god created humankind in his image and she's quoting genesis 126 in the image of god he created them male and female he created them and provides an alternative vision of the relationship of men and women to each other uh, and God than that pertaining to the typical patriarchal culture. The New Testament can too, too contains egalitarian texts that provide a theological critique of patriarchy. Hmm. Um, and so what she's really saying is um, she's, so she's, what she's really kind of getting at is that driving underneath a lot of this is there is this counterintuitive way maybe to read the Bible Mm -hmm. um and 
and how there's irony within the Bible. It's that's like the irony is the Bible is in itself, including some irony um, that's helping us see a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And so a yeah. great way to think about this might be. Um, so in the Old Testament, a lot of the um, patriarchs, the founders of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, like they all have multiple wives and sometimes concubines. And so people are like, why would the Bible embrace men who have this, you know, um, who are you know, essentially just using these women's as property to barter with and things like that, which Abraham does twice in his life. Um, and the Bible, there's a huge difference between what the Bible records and what the Bible approves of. And so one yeah, of the descriptive things, versus prescriptive. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the, de the description here of what's happening with Abraham is um, like the Bible constantly records all of the um, challenges and disharmony and discord that comes from having a marriage with multiple wives or and treating women in these kinds of ways. And so it's subtly jabbing at their you their i don't know their lifestyle choice if you want to yeah. get better and, I, and this is one of the things too i think that continues to lead credence to the biblical stories mm -hmm. is there's no way a story from back then would have been well accepted that viewed such a great leader in such a poor light at times mm. yeah yeah like no one like you know like like it kind of reminds me of like what the story we get about the founding fathers when we were little kids versus like maybe in your advanced high school history class or right. college class, like right. you finally find out like, Oh wow. Like they did some weird and shady things too. Right. Like that doesn't change the fact that you still consider them great, important characters in our history. Right. But you get a nuance now to be like, Oh, okay. And the point being though, is that sometimes you have to really dig to right. find those bad views of people right. who have been here. Like, Right. made to be heroes, but it's right there in the Bible the whole time. It's not like this the was Bible dug up later. To cover it up. Right. right. Yeah. It never tries to be subtle about it. Like every single one too. In fact, that's kind of the whole point is that none of these men are perfect. Right. Until the one that is. Until the one that comes. <laughs> so um, let's talk about the one who comes. I want to finish with this quote with, with from her really quick um, with what Phil and I are talking about. I think she, she in, uh, says this well. She says, it is often the stories of women those excluded from the public patriarchal discourse, which challenged the dominant voice of the text. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly what we've been positioning is happening in Luke's gospel when he's giving the voice to Mary and Elizabeth. Um, they are challenging the dominant voice of the text, which in this case would be Zechariah and Herod and um, some others. So in this context, it's important that we open ourselves up to the Bible's irony. Mm. And I love the way that she puts that because... There is irony in the fact that um, that the Gospels, or, or just the, the Scripture in general, takes these heroes of the faith, like Abraham, but then does actually paints them in pretty poor light a lot of times. Yeah, so can you, I, I mean, I know that um, ever since that song, Isn't It Ironic? You know, everybody has a hard time coming up with what exactly irony is because some of the examples in that song aren't irony. So can you kind of help us here, like, understand what you're meaning when you're saying ironic ironic yeah so so and you might add to or take away from this definition here's what i would call ironic um it's ironic that the bible show, tells us peter was the rock at which jesus builds the church and yet so many times in the gospels we have records of peter really getting it wrong okay yeah. over mm -hmm. and over again so like 
<laughs> taking what you'd expect and giving you something different right. that like intentionally goes against the expectations of what right. you'd expect to have come out of that situation. Exactly. So yeah. like, for example, like if the Bible, like if, if the Bible were written, I think without divine inspiration and authorship, we wouldn't expect the Bible to take pick characters like Abraham and Jacob and say, these are the, the faith, fig these are the heroes of your faith. You should follow them blindly. Um, <laughs> right. Which is what you would expect. I think right. from, from, a from, if, if the text were to follow conventional power structures instead yeah. it says these are the heroes of the faith look how messed up they were and god still used them anyway like they had no, like wait a second like, they were constantly they had no idea what they were doing they were making terrible decisions sometimes they were making unjust decisions you're making a very poor argument why i should follow these people right and that's the irony of it. right so, yeah exactly right? So, so yeah in the ancient world you didn't record so like there's a reason we don't have records of like any of the pharaoh's defeats and the ancient Egypt. yeah they just they straight up just gloss over there uh, yeah minor detail let's not talk about that right and they, well there were i think there were even like customs in place in like ancient egypt where you did not record a, a pharaoh oh no defeats. of course not. and if you were ever found in public talking about it too like yeah you were yeah. <laughs> right so <laughs> gives a whole nother definition to like freedom of speech and freedom of press right but like there in the ancient world there's no such thing as freedom of press and and so it would have been like on emperor's new groove when like the old man comes in and he like bumps into the emperor he's like you threw off my groove beware the groove <laughs> that's like the, the perfect way to put it right like the bible is is not only like it's not only it includes stuff that sometimes would undermine what it's getting totally you, like what you would think what, of it yeah would you think yeah exactly what, it, what you would think of it doing it's undermine like it's telling you abraham's this father of our faith who's given all these blessings but then undermines some of that by showing some of his some of the some of the times he really struggled with his faith or made um bad decisions <laughs> yeah. um and right so there's some irony to it right. just like you there's irony in the bible recording that peter is the foundation of which god builds the church and yet so many times we see Peter. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right. At one point. Behind, <laughs> like there's some irony like, in that. And so we're supposed to see something in that. Irony. Oh yeah. Supposed and it's supposed to make you space. think. Yeah. And so let's talk about, let's, so let's talk about like just maybe the irony in, in Jesus's ministry, right? So mm. this, what you're calling is tension. So maybe how do we see the tension that Jesus had, like, or maybe the tension that we're, we first experienced with Mary and Elizabeth announcing this good news. Mm-hmm. And then we see it continue into the ministry of the Messiah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, from the beginning, um, the chief priests weren't informed. Herod, who calls himself the king, which is really, he was just such a petty tyrant puppet of the Romans. Right. He's a, he's a pawn. Of yeah. I mean, he didn't. Anyway, so he's like desperately trying to figure out, right. okay, there's someone called King of the Jews that supposedly was born. Like, no, I'm the King of the Jews. Like, right. why wasn't I informed here? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, so that, that it starts off with that. Right. Yeah. And these men from the East who weren't Jewish, I mean, there's lots of theories that maybe that they were left over from the exile right. and they were Jews who right. just stayed there. Right. We don't really know. The point is that they weren't expected to be there. Right. You wouldn't expect someone from outside to be looking towards who God is. And especially that would be okay with them coming as a child, right? right. Um, you have the the shepherds, which, I mean, this there's so much like uh, links um, 
in the Bible to things that should make you like, you know, if you read it enough, like, oh, I'm seeing this now is uh, David was almost overlooked for who was going to be the anointed one because he was out shepherding. Right. And the, his dad, Jesse, was like, oh, you don't. Yeah, I have another kid, but he's out. You know, he's just right. a shepherd boy out there. Right. Like, he can't possibly be him. Right. To give you some context, it's Israel looking for a yeah. king. They show <laughs> Samuel up. Samuel is going to is told by God to go to the a son it, that one of the sons of Jesse is going to be king. And then he shows up, and it's David who Jesse doesn't even like. He he didn't even like warn David like, hey, come in, so the you know the prophet can overlook you right. or look you over, I should say. Uh, he's like, no, it can't possibly be him, so I'm not going to bother. Right. Well, well, guess who it was? was (laughs) (laughs) The shepherd. And guess who we're called at Jesus' birth? The shepherds. Shepherds. Yeah, which we're going to talk about this week, and I'm really excited about. But um, yeah, so anyway, sorry. So you have, just from the start, like you've been talking about these people that shouldn't be there that are there. Right. Well, to the people at the time, to God, it's like, well, of course. Mm. Um, and so basically the main thing that's really going to grind the gears, so to speak of the, the religious institutions of the, of the time for Jesus is that he's going to be meeting and like talking with and having them touch him of all these people that were considered unclean and pure, uh, that were just basically, when you see the word rich in the New Testament or the wealthy or whatever, I, I'm not going to say that that's a bad translation, but I would think more think privileged, entitled mm-hmm. rather than rich. So much, right. I think, obviously, a, a love of wealth can right. be a right. really sure way to not be living in Christ, like living as right. Christ wanted. But I think we we, we vilify rich like yeah. wealth yeah. too much to the extent that we lose sight of what the real problem is there. And it's a feeling of privilege and entitlement mm-hmm. that the, uh, this place of power. Yeah. And so really it's not that the rich specifically have ha- such a hard time getting into heaven. It's those who are privileged and entitled and have all of the things in life going in their favor. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to look up the exact reference, but you know, and, that, and that's great because Jesus doesn't exclude the powerful from his ministry. And we shouldn't no. either. I mean, Lydia, the a, a, the person who makes a fine purple cloth, right. she would have been incredibly wealthy right. at the time. Right. But you see Paul like immediately like, oh, yeah, that she needs to le- start leading this house church. Like, like, this is good. Right. So I'm, I'm even thinking of Jesus and the centurion. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But see, that's the great example of that reversal. Yeah. You have here someone who was or should have been considered someone you don't mess with in a right. powerful position. Right. And why Jesus says specifically to him, I haven't seen such faith yeah. in all of Israel is because you have the exact example of a person who has everything going for them in life. Right who recognizes Jesus's authority and his position. Right. right. And, his, and then the religious authorities of, of Israel wouldn't even do that. Right. That, so that's in Matthew 8, by the way, um, verses 5 through 13. Jesus comes across this uh, centurion who um, is essentially, I don't know, how would you describe a centurion? They're, yeah, so like, in Roman right. society, um, it was a very great honor to be uh, in the military 
to serve Rome. In fact, if you were a non-citizen, one of the ways you could earn your citizenship was, was through, through the military. Yeah. And a centurion was someone who led a great number of troops. Right. I mean, this would have been a, a well-accomplished, like, colonel or general or right. something. Think right. of, like, that kind of level. Right. Like, there's level, lots of little generals, so maybe think, like, lower-level general, but still, like, a very right. powerful, well-respected, well-connected right. person right. who basically has not had to want or need of anything ever since they got into right. this position. Right. And this person has someone very dear to them, I believe, son. It's a, it's a servant. Servant. It's yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, which is even my another link here. My servant. suffering terribly. Yeah, and so <clears throat> one of the other things, too, in this story is that he recognizes that Jesus doesn't even need to be present mm -hmm. for this servant. Right. He's like, I know how power structures work. I'm in the military. I know how my boss tells me and I tell them to right. all the way down to the grunts, like what right. to do. Right. He's like, yeah, hey, you're that way too. Right. Your father to right. get to you and you, right. you know, you it's like, you that's how right. it works. Right. He gets it. Right. And Jesus is like, yeah. He, and that's what I love too, is you see the humanness of Jesus here. He's amazed. Mm. This isn't like Jesus, like, Hey guys, in five minutes, I'm going to run to the centurion <laughs> and I'm going right. to act surprised. Right. Like, <laughs> cause I know exactly. No, he's like legitimately like, right. I right. can just imagine the smile on his face and being like, yes, right. yes, you get it. So, so the conversation <laughs> Phil's talking about, let me read it for us quickly. It's only a few verses. So centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said this, said those following him, truly I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And so, yeah, yeah so you do, you have somebody who says, I have a lot of authority. I have lots of people that say, I go and do this, and they do it. I have lots of servants that do this and do that. And yet Jesus says, I don't think I've found anybody who has faith like you. Um, and there's some amazement there. Um, and I think there's some, right. And I think we see that in the, in the, in the centurion's humility. So I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's just sort of this recognizing, recognizing that it's almost like as if I've got all this authority, but ultimately it doesn't mean anything compared without you. And he recognizes real authority. Yeah. So how else does Jesus counterintuitive with the few minutes we have left? Yeah. Sorry. There's so much. Um, uh, just some of the people that he approaches and talks to like, um, people with leprosy yeah. who would have not only been considered unclean, but literally could have gotten Jesus contaminated right. with some sort of skin condition. Right. He's fine with t having right. them touch him. Any physical contact. Um, yeah. Uh, him work, him healing on the Sabbath. Right. So their understanding of the Sabbath at the time was that you literally do nothing. Right. You neither help nor hurt. Like right. you just do nothing. Right. And I, I in, I'm not trying to say like they had good intentions, but they weren't understanding what the Sabbath was really about. Right. And so that's another way he sort of bucks this is because that was the understanding and the power structure of the time. And no one else was allowed to say what was allowed on the Sabbath other than the religious leaders right. in Israel. And right. so he's bucking that. Um, the, the, there's different translations for what he is, but the the, deme the demoniac with the shackles all over him, mm -hmm. who like yeah, nobody wanted to five. deal with, yeah. with because he was like naked and had chains all over him and right. running around screaming weird things, attacking right. people. Jesus just walks right up to this guy. Right. Like all of these things, like 
you know, imagine like the most like bougie, like person in a fine club. And then like right. Jesus mm -hmm. walks in and he's got like a homeless guy with him. And you're like, oh my, right. <laughs> like, right. well, I never. Like, yeah. <laughs> and and we are maybe used to this idea, but I just like, I think of how groundbreaking this would have been. And even to the point where Jesus, I think, does sometimes things that would have inevitably hurt his public reputation. Constantly. Uh, and caused rumors. Like he <laughs> Being has, from Nazareth. Right. Being from Nazareth. But I'm even thinking of like Jesus having the conversation with the woman at the well. Right. Uh, who's oh, a yeah. Samaritan. And his, uh, well, a woman alone. Alone. Yeah. His disciples are And a Samaritan. Right. And when his disciples show up, they're like, they were about to like, they were like, Jesus, what are you doing? Right. They're like, don't just, you know what this is going to look like? Don't you know how this looks? Yeah. And Jesus is like, yeah, guys, I yeah, know. I know exactly how this looks like. Y'all need to check yourselves, not right. me. <laughs> <laughs> and so here's where I want to close. When Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, I hope that this can, all of this can kind of put, put the Beatitudes in perspective, right? With what Mary has prayed, mm -hmm. what has started with this ministry of the Messiah. Jesus says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you see all of a sudden Jesus take this posture of those who are mourning and those who are hurting are going to see what those of you who have lived in relative comfort and power aren't going to see. And they're blessed because of that. Blessed are those who are mourning, blessed are those who are meek. Yeah, um, and the, there's a couple levels here, I think, and it's fine as people disagree on the levels, but I think one of the really cool things is if you if you also go down to the level of, um, you can connect um, what Jesus is saying here in the Beatitudes to Isaiah 61, mm -hmm. which that he actually references mm -hmm. when he, he, he reads the scriptures aloud to everybody and is saying, hey, now this is fulfilled right. in your presence, right. is these people who are mourning and thirsting for righteousness, it's it's a religious, it's a spiritual right. mourning and right. a spiritual as well. And it totally is also like, these are people who are in line with God's character, right. but he's, he's giving hope to all these people because right. he's speaking to Israelites. Like you've been waiting and hungering and dealing with all this crap doing the right thing for so long. Like, of course, no one was perfect and he wasn't saying they're perfect for doing this, but like all these people who, you know, you've been trying to uphold justice, you've been oppressed, you've been all for my purpose because he's identifying himself with righteousness. Right. I'm here now. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm telling you, you've been waiting to hear it from me. I'm telling you right now, Y'all are the blessed ones, not the people who are in power, not the people oppressing you, not the people who have been, right. you know, YOLOing it up, living life to the, the fullest, yeah. right? Like y'all, y'all who have been living uncomfortably for all the right reasons. Yeah. I'm here. Yeah. I'm your comfort. Yeah. That's so good. And I think that's a perfect.
I'm just as you're reading that, I'm here. All of those of you who have been existing, I just I think of Mary's words of yeah. On all generations will call me blessed mm-hmm. um, because of what God is doing through me. Um, maybe I, I don't have the privileged position in my culture and my society, and yet everyone's going to call me blessed. blessed. Yeah, and here we are now yeah. calling her blessed because she. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much so. That's good. Thanks, Phil, for being here. Glad to be here. Uh, until next time.